Why all the disdain and, and disrepair? Why is it that we hate our neighbor? Why is it that we keep banging our heads on things over and over and over again? Why is it that both Christians and non-Christians alike have this innate sense that the world is not the way it's supposed to be? There's something wrong with the world. What's the problem? First and second Samuel want to give you an answer to that question. The problem with the world, according to this letter is, brace for it, you and me. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to find it. Find the book of Judges. That might be a surprise to you because we just saw a trailer for First and Second Samuel, but the reason why we're going to look at the book of Judges first is because it lays out the context for everything that we're going to be looking at in this series. We'll probably be there until about Easter or so. And so if, uh, if you're a member of Gateway, you know that every time we start a new series on a book of the Bible, I like to give you the story behind the story. Because when I was a little kid and I heard a pastor say, open up your Bibles to such and such a place, I would often think to myself, like, who wrote it? Why was it written? What's the context? How long ago was it written? And why is it so important for me to understand these characters that lived literally thousands of years ago? Why is it so important for me? No one told me the story behind the story. And that is what I think we can do this morning to lay the foundation for what we're looking at for the next couple of months. So this morning, we're going to look at Judges chapters 17 to 21. Those aren't verses. Those are chapters. I'm not going to read all of it this morning, but I would encourage you to do that later on this afternoon or sometime this week. I'm a slow reader. It took me less than 20 minutes. And so I just want to entrust that to you. Read through those chapters, and you are going to get a visceral sense of what Israel is living in as they enter into this time of 1 Samuel. In fact, the book of Judges ends this way. Let me read it to you. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. What we're going to see is Samuel is going to usher out the time of the Judges... And he's going to usher in the time of the kings. So this is kind of a a, a cling-on for us to see what's about to happen. And then it says this, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so once again, we should see that there is nothing new under the sun. This is what I, I think this is perhaps our culture's greatest value today. Like, let me just ask you a question. What is the leading worldview of our culture and context today? How do we derive what is true today? What is the ultimate authority of our lives in the U.S. and in Canada, in the West, in the 21st century today? Who gets to dictate what is true, what is right, what is noble, what is admirable, and what we should all go after? Who's the leading source of truth? You know the answer to that question. It's you. You, the expressive individual. 
And we see that in the way that we live our lives. We, we say things like, uh, you determine what is true for you. I'll determine what is true for me. Pursue your own truth. Love is love. We have all these slogans that we use which highlight the value of this motif. That I determine what is true for me. And you determine what is true for you. Truth is what I make it. And I just want you to see up front just how incredibly practical not only the book of Judges, but the books of First and Second Samuel are to every single person in this room. Think about this with me for a second. God saw fit since the dawn of time to not only place you where you are, but also when you are for such a time as this. And so we should see that there's nothing new under the sun, but God has uniquely seen fit to have you both where and when you are so that you can make a kingdom contribution in the world that he loves. And so these books are incredibly practical for the culture and the context that we live in today. And if we have the eyes to see, these chapters are really going to highlight for us ultimately what is wrong with the world What's wrong with us? What's wrong with the world that we live in? Pastor Adam just, just prayed for us and gave us a highlight of what's happening in the world right now. Why all the cruelty and corruption? Why all the disdain and, and disrepair? Why is it that we hate our neighbor? Why is it that we keep banging our heads on things over and over and over again? Why is it that both Christians and non-Christians alike have this innate sense that the world is not the way it's supposed to be? There's something wrong with the world. What's the problem? First and second Samuel want to give you an answer to that question. The problem with the world, according to this letter, is, brace for it, you and me. The sin nature that rages in each and every one of our hearts. And I've shared with you before that oftentimes I think we don't have a very good definition of what sin is and what it isn't. Oftentimes we think of sin as God's righteous rules that he ele elevates for us. He says, here's how you're supposed to live your life. They feel somewhat arbitrary to us sometimes, but if we don't follow God's rules sufficiently enough, if we're not sharper than the average tool in the shed, then he's going to reject us for all of eternity. But if we're moral enough, if we're good enough, then he's going to invite us in to eternity with him. And yet, if, if that's your understanding of the gospel, my question to you is, what is the purpose of Jesus coming at all? What's the purpose of Jesus coming? See, there's something even deeper that every single one of us needs to grapple with with regard to our sin nature, the traitor within. See, even if you're trying to do good, if you're trying to live up to a certain moral standard, if you're trying, trying to be moral out of the belief that God's going to give you salvation, he's going to give you heaven, he's going to give you health or wealth or happiness or any of those things, what that means is you're merely doing good to get something in return. You don't love God, you love yourself. Sorry, not sorry. You don't love God, you love yourself. You're motivated to do good things out of a deep love for the most important person in your life, you. You. And so we have to have a better definition of what sin 
ultimately is. I shared with you a month ago that one of my favorite definitions comes from Augustine when he says this, sin is homo incurvatus in se, which is Latin for the human being who's turned in on themselves. You're fixated on yourself. You're always appealing to yourself. Or in other words, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. It's all about you and no one else. C.S. Lewis, when he talked about sin and hell, he put it this way. I think this is really helpful. He says, the real mark of hell is a sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon the self. We must understand hell is a place where everyone is perpetually concerned about his or her own dignity, his or her own advancement, where everybody has a grievance. Everybody lives in the deadly seriousness of envy and of self-importance. Do you feel that? Do you feel the weight and the heaviness of that? Do you see what he's saying? Sin is something in each and every one of us that just wants to be constantly petted and stroked and admired. Sin is that innate desire in each and every one of us to treat every other human being on the planet as a ladder to get what I want. And so we're tempted to treat God in such a way that he's just a utility to get what I want. My neighbor is a utility to get what I want. And so even the good things I do, not just the bad things, even the good things I do need to be questioned. Why? Because is it possible, dear Christian, that the real reason why we're doing anything good at all is just to get a return on investment? Just to get ultimately what I want, what I need, what I strive for. And I learned long ago that it fits much better to do good things, to manipulate others, to treat them as a tool or a utility to get what I want. Even the good things I do need to be questioned. Why do anything good at all? Do I truly love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do I truly love my neighbor as myself? Or do I just love me, my ego, my desires? Because sin is a hamster wheel of pride and self-importance. And so the gospel, in a nutshell, it's not merely thinking less of myself. It's thinking about myself less and God more, and my neighbor more, making much of Jesus. And so we have to pull ourselves away from this moralism mindset and toward the gospel of Jesus. And if we can do that this morning, right on the front end, then we are going to see the beauty of what is highlighted in First and Second Samuel in ushering in the person of Jesus Christ but we need to have the eyes to see. So let me bring you up to speed on what's happening in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a history of Israel after they came into the promised land. So you have Moses, you have Joshua, they usher Israel into Canaan, into the land of promise, and uh, they have a brief stint in the wilderness because they disobey, but after 40 years, they go in. They go into the land of blessing, the land of promise. It is theirs. God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. They rejoice, they worship him, but then when they go into the land of blessing, what happens? 
They no longer Goshen God. They don't draw near to God. They draw near to his created things. And they start worshiping themselves or other gods. God relinquishes his hand of blessing. And then typically what happens is another surrounding pagan nation, they come in, they wipe them out, they enslave them, something like that. And then Israel comes back to God with their tail between their legs and they say, Lord, Lord, forgive us. We're so sorry. Please come back to us. And then God comes in and he saves the day. He gives them a judge. They... um, Everything is undone. They go back into the land of blessing. God brings his blessing upon them again. They say, thank you, Jesus. And then guess what happens? They forget about God. And they start worshiping themselves and other created things. And around and around and around and around and around and around it goes. Over and over again, they bang their head on exactly the same things. And it all finds its culmination In Judges chapter 16, this is the last judge, that's Samson, and from Judges chapter 17 to 21, there's no more judges. All there is, is a group of stories where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. There's no longer worshiping of God, just doing what is right in their own eyes. That leads to chapter 17. It opens with the story of a random man named Micah, not to be confused with the prophet Micah, And he overhears his mom utter a curse on the person who stole all her money. But here's where the story gets really interesting. It turns out that it was him, her own son, who stole the 1,100 pieces of silver from her. But he believes in God just enough. He's just religious enough to be afraid of the curse. And so he says, Mom, Mom, I'm so sorry it was me. I stole all your money. Please, if, I'll give you the money back. Just relinquish the curse. Please don't lay that curse upon me. And she's so overjoyed by his confession, she does even more than that. Pick up with me. Let's start at reading verse 3. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother... She said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I give it back to you. What an amazingly complex verse we just read. Verse 4. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, do you know what Micah means? Micah means who is like God. This man named who is like God had a shrine made in the image of God. That's the irony. This man, Micah, who is like God, has a shrine, an image made in the image of God, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. Now, you got to notice something really important. Is Micah and his mom, are are they making an image of a false god? If so, we might say, how terrible. Don't you know the first commandment? No other gods before me. Don't you know you're not supposed to make uh, or worship any other images or worship any other gods other than the one true God? And yet, if you look closely, she's not making a false idol. There are plenty of false idols in the book of Judges. The Philistines, they had Dagon. We're going to talk about him in a couple weeks. The Canaanites had Baal and Asherah. The Assyrians had Rimon. The Moabites had Chemosh. All of these false gods. But she doesn't say, I'm going to uh, make an image of silver worshiping any of these false gods. That's not what's happening here. She makes an image of Yahweh. 
the one true God. So if you know your Bible, you know that this is not um, a violation of the first commandment. It is a violation of the second commandment, which is no graven images. No graven images. Now, why is that important? I think a lot of believers, even today, understand why the first commandment is so important. Of course, you need to worship the one true God. But why is it so significant for us not to have a graven image of God if that helps us enter into worship? Like, for instance, we have tons of images and tokens and trinkets that help us remember things. We have rings to help us remember marriages. We have pictures and tombstones to help us remember lost loved ones. We have trinkets or tokens that help us remember places we've been or important milestones that, that we have uh, done over the years, right? We have all these little images and trinkets that we use to help us enter into meaningful moments. So why is it so bad for us to have an image to help us worship God who is invisible, right? Like that we, we can't touch him, we can't see him, we can't interact with him in any of those ways. Of course there's going to be a desire for us to build something so that we can worship God. Why is it that God detests that? Why is that such a problem? Well, I put it this way in your note sheet. Here's what happens when believers live for themselves and they do what is right in their own eyes. Invariably, what happens when we make images made of anything to worship God, we do this. We redefine God rather than submit to him. We redefine God rather than submit to him. And we see that in the story here. This woman hasn't created an alternate God, a different God. She's just worshiping a reduced version of the one true God. She's simply whittled God down. She's made God, the one true God, more manageable, more controllable, more in her own image. A God that you can put in your pocket or in your purse. A God that you can control. And listen, this is the heart of sin. This is the heart of sin. Taking God in his glory and his magnificence and whittling him down into a manageable person that you can control. And when you think about it, is that not exactly what Israel did in the wilderness? What were the, the two grievous sins that Israel did when they went out into the wilderness? Both of them are the same thing. The first one is uh, Moses, he goes up to Mount Sinai, and then all the people of Israel, they say, we need to make an image to worship God. Now, here's what's interesting. They make a golden calf. Why is that significant? Well, in Egypt, they worship the god Apis, which was a bull with huge horns, and the bull Apis represented the might, the magnificence, and the provision of God through who? Through Pharaoh, the king. And they're like, well, we don't worship Pharaoh anymore, so we're going to worship Yahweh, the one true God. Apis freaked us out a little bit, big horns, so let's make him cute and cuddly and manageable and controllable. That's our God. We're going to worship him. They've whittled him down. And then what's the second thing they do? God brings them out in the wilderness, and he says, I'm going to give you some manna to eat. Here's the thing, though. You can take Enough manna for one day, not two days, not a week, not a month, not a quarter, not a year, one day. What do they do? They take enough for a week, 
And then all the manna turns into maggots inside their tents, and it is detestable to God. What are both of these stories doing? It's revealing the heart of sin. What is the heart of sin? That we want to get out from under God's hand, out from under his control, out from under his power. We love the provision of God. We just don't like the kingship of God, the lordship of God, the control of God. And we're trying to get out from underneath it. And each of these stories reveals in very practical ways how Israel did it and how we keep doing it today. We keep doing it today. So what might it look like for us? Because we, sophisticated 21st century people, we, we don't make images made of gold or silver or wood. We don't do those kinds of things. No, we do it in far more subtle ways. The way we do it today is we might take God in his true form and then we like to highlight the things that we agree with and then we kind of disregard the things we don't. We highlight his strength and his power, but we might not highlight so much his concern for the poor and the marginalized. Or we highlight his grace, but we kind of limit his zeal and his passion for purity and justice. And invariably, what we do is we whittle down God, we start worshiping a reduced version of God, which is no God at all. It's just the deified version of yourself. Again, sorry, not sorry. This is how we do it in our mind today. We begin to worship something that looks a whole lot more like us than the one true God who sits on his throne and is sovereign over all things. And I've shared with you for four years that no one lies to you more than you lie to yourself. And the one thing we have to do is to bring out our mirror Bibles and to say, have we done the same thing? Maybe we haven't made a shrine made of silver or a shrine made of gold, but have we whittled God down? Have we changed him in his essence? And invariably, if we do that, here's the second thing that we'll do right along with it. Number two, in your note sheet, we redefine God's law rather than commit to his law. We redefine God's law rather than commit to his. So what does that sound like today? Here's what it sounds like. It's, it's something like, you know, I just don't think God would ever say, and then we make something up. I just, I don't think God would ever do, and, and then we make something up. But listen, God has made himself knowable in his word. We never have to say that. Because God has revealed himself, his will for our lives, his will for his people through his divine word. But anytime we say something like that, that's really what we're trying to get at. And now like then, most people today, we don't have trouble with the first commandment. We have trouble with the second. The temptation for us friends is to redefine God in an image that we can control an image that we like. God likes what I like. He, he hates what I hate. And look at the problems over there. We get the binoculars out and we're like, God hates those things. But he's actually quite gracious with the things that I'm banging my head on. Good for me. Tough for you. And that's the way that we do it today. We use binocular Bibles and not mirror Bibles. But here's the essence of First and Second Samuel. Here's the theme of this whole book. 
God opposes the proud and he exalts the humble. He opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. And so when we redefine God's law, we do that anytime we say something like, you know, I just think this book is a little bit antiquated, a little bit out of date, right? Um, no longer applies to me. I think I know a little bit better. Anytime we follow that line of reasoning, just admit it, what seems right in your own eyes has more weight than what God's word actually says. So now look at verse 7 with me. And it shows the third thing believers do when they follow what is right in their own eyes, when they act like they are their own and they belong to themselves. Verse 7, Micah makes a statue. He puts it on his house. Uh, but then Micah meets a Levite. And he's traveling around. And Micah's like, oh, this is perfect. My very own Levite. And just in case you don't know, the tribe of Levi, that, that, or the, the Levitical priesthood, that comes from Moses and from Aaron. One of the 12 tribes is set apart. There's not part of any of the inheritance of the land. They're devoted to the priesthood. They're devoted to the tabernacle. They're devoted to the temple, drawing in the rest of Israel to make much of the one true God. And so this Levite, he's traveling around and Micah says, he could be my very own priest. Wouldn't that be sweet? And so he, he goes up to this Levite and he says, hey, you know, would, would you be my personal Levite? And the priest says, well, technically you shouldn't do that. But just out of curiosity, how much are you paying? He's like, I'm paying a lot. Okay, well, let me go and pray, for, pray about it for a second. Yep, perfect. I can do it. God gave me permission to do it. I will be your personal priest. Judges 17 verse 13, look at this. He says, and Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me. Fascinating. Now I know the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. In other words, now I've got God in my pocket. Now I can control God. Now God has to bless my life. Because I've got my own shrine, I've got my own priest, I've got everything I need. And here's the third way that we do what is right in our own eyes. We use God, and we're convinced that God can be bought rather than worship him. We use God rather than worship him. Do you remember the definition of sin that we started with, to turn in on oneself? Here's the problem. Most people, when they're ready to turn toward God, we still have our sin nature to deal with. And if we're not careful, even when we begin to turn toward God, we might be tempted to turn toward him, not because we want to make much of the creator of the universe sovereign over all, but because we want him to bless my life. We want him to do what I want. And just like Micah, we want to get the trinkets, we want to get God, we want to get him on my side so that he will do the things that I want him to do. And it's not motivated out of a love for God. It's not motivated out of a love for my neighbor. No, God has to be good to me. He has to bless me. He has to give me what I need. Because look, I'm, I'm doing all the appropriate religious things. Therefore, he should bless my life. Tim Keller, in his book, Judges for You, he writes this. The great substitute for true faith in God is this kind of religiosity. And it's built on two premises. Number one, God exists for you. 
And number two, if you do the right things, God owes you. By contrast, true faith says, God, I exist for you, and you don't owe me anything. I owe you. So false religion seeks to control God, but true faith surrenders to God. And here's the question that I have to lay out before you, which God are you worshiping? Which God are you worshiping? Are you worshiping a God of your own creation? A genie in a bottle? Uh, a lucky rabbit's foot, if you will, something that you can carry with you so that God's going to bless your life or he's going to answer the call when you call on him? Or are you worshiping the one true God, sovereign over all? Which God are you worshiping? And to help you answer that question, there's a fourth way believers do what is right in their own eyes. And I think of all the four ways we do this, this one is perhaps the greatest litmus test to help us discern if we're worshiping the one true God or if we're worshiping a whittled down God made in our own image. And so I think this one in some ways is the most significant. So let's pick up on the story. In the next chapter, another group of Israelites, they show up at Micah's house. Lo and behold, they have more money than Micah. Uh-oh. And this priest, as you know, he doesn't care much about what God's word says. All he cares about is the payout. And they say, we'll pay you more. So the priest leaves. And just before he goes, he even takes the trinket with him, the, the silver idol. He takes it with him. Now Micah has lost his idol and his priest. And when he discovers this, he runs up toward them. And he says, you can't take those things. Here's what he says in verse 24. He replied, if you take the gods I made and my priest, what do I have left? What a question. What do I have left? If you take this little shrine of God that I've made, if you take my priest, what will I have left? Now, this group, they, they tell him to go home, otherwise they'll put him and his family to death. And that's the last that we hear of Micah. But here's the question I want to lay out before you. The question is this. What if tomorrow God took away your idols? What if tomorrow God took away your idols? Now, the way I just framed that question, you, you might say, well, that would be great. That'd be perfect. Yeah, of course God has to take my idols away so that I can worship him. But here's the real pinch. What if you have been worshiping something like your business or your influence or your bank account or your spouse or your health or fill in the blank? What if tomorrow God takes away your idols? What will you do then? Will you throw up your hands like Micah and say, what do I have left? You've taken everything away from me. And God will say, don't you see? You've been worshiping something made of stone, something that's not coming with you, something of no eternal significance. I want to give you the eyes to see that I am the creator. I am sovereign over all. And yet you've put all your trust in something that can never satisfy your soul. What if tomorrow God takes away your idols? What will you do then? 
And so here's the litmus test for you, point number four in your note sheet. When you live for yourselves, when you worship anything other than God, here's what we're gonna do. We will live in fear of losing control of that thing, of our lives, rather than surrendering to God. See, when you shrink God down to a size that you can control, you're always going to live in fear of losing him. You're always going to live in fear of losing whatever that idol is in your life. And you're going to try and stroke it and coddle it and control it and protect it and all those kinds of things. And God's trying to wake you up and say, you've been putting your trust, your sense of hope, your sense of identity in a created thing that will never satisfy you. But here's what happens. When you surrender to the one true God, you're going to quit worrying about all that because you know that God can never lose control of you. He can never let you out of the palm of his hand. And so it makes us calm and filled with peace when we know that the sovereign creator of the universe has got you in the palm of his hand. But if you have made yourself the ruler of your own little kingdom and your own little throne, I promise you, you will live in perpetual fear of losing those things. But if you see God for who he truly is, then you're going to have the heart of Paul who says, neither height nor depth nor angel nor demons nor the past nor the present nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me from the surpassing knowledge of God who is in Christ Jesus. He's got me. He's got me. So which God are you worshiping? A God of your own creation or the one true God? Now, we got to keep going, but I just want to lay something at your feet here. Uh, if you like to read, I want to lay before you a book to read during this series. It's called You Are Not Your Own, written by Alan Noble. If you like to read, get it. If you don't like to read, get it. There you go. It's on Audible. You can listen to it while you drive. Hey, you know, just something like that. Just, just get it because it's going to help unpack all the implications of everything we're going to be sitting in for the next couple of months. And it, the fundamental lie of modernity is this, that we are not our own, but we belong to ourselves. We belong to ourselves. Therefore, what we need to do is to try to determine what is true and what is right and what is good for ourselves. And it leaves us like Micah. This is why the world that you live in is filled with angst. You know it. All your neighbors are filled with angst. All your social media threads are filled with angst. All your coworkers and friends are filled with angst. We're banging our head on this. This right here. And so I just want to entrust that to you. And the next three chapters, they show you what happens when God is absent. Now, I talked with my colleagues this week, and I was like, hey, so I want you to read Judges chapter 19, 20, and 21. Tell me if I can read those chapters in this context. And we decided we can't. We can't. There's just too many young ears listening, because these are some of the, the most gruesome chapters in the whole Bible. So I want to entrust it to you to read later. Okay, I just couldn't figure out a way. I spent a lot of time like, I could say it this way. Nope. I could say it like, no, nope, I can't. So just read the chapters. But I want to give you the essence of what happens in these three chapters when people live like God doesn't exist. Here's what happens. The weak are abused. The powerful live in fear. And everyone lives in despair. The inevitable result of casting off the rule of God is defining morality in a way that benefits the strong against the weak. 
but also the strong live in fear of losing the control and the power that they have, and everyone lives in despair. Now listen, if God doesn't exist, then it doesn't matter how you treat your neighbor, because your life is like a mist. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow, and it might take a thousand years, it might take 10,000 years, it might take 100,000 years, but eventually the sun's going to explode or we're going to get hit by something and the whole earth is just going to go and no one's going to remember anyway. It's just going to be over. If God doesn't exist, like who cares? Live, live your life. But if God does exist and if he has revealed himself in his word, then it matters more than anything the way that we live our lives and how we treat the vulnerable in our midst, the fatherless, the homeless, the prisoner, the unborn, the widow, the poor, the lonely, the lost. The way that we treat the lowest of low indicates how much the gospel has penetrated our hearts. High school students, do you... Do you Speak up for those who are getting picked on at school. Do you step into those environments? There are a few times where you are more like God when you stand up for someone who is being abused at school. And it breaks the heart of God when we enter into those kinds of things. Or all of you who are Christians, does it break your heart knowing that, they're, that you have friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors who don't know Jesus? And does it mobilize you to love them as you love yourself, to invite them into your home, to invite them to church, to, to share with them the love of Jesus? Does it compel you to do these things? Because the manner in which we interact with our neighbor reveals our love for God. It reveals our love for God. And that sets the stage for what we're going to see in First and Second Samuel. So with the time that we have remaining, here's what I want to do. I want us to consider this question. Why all this talk about a king? Why is it that Judges four times talks about Israel had no king, Israel had no king, Israel had no king, Israel had no king? Why is that so important? And again, like I said to you, here's how it ends. Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. Well, here's what we're going to see. Eventually, even God is going to reveal to Samuel that it broke his heart when Israel asked for a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, And the Lord told Samuel, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. And so, yes, it's true that Israel had no king, but fundamentally it's because Israel failed to acknowledge God as their one true king. The real problem with Israel was not the lack of a proper king, but the lack of obedience to God as their one true king. And then, like now, and now like then, they had a fixation on their leaders, their kings, their presidents, their prime ministers. If only we get the right person in office. If only we get the right king, then everything will be okay. And yet scripture says, do not put your trust in princes. Put your trust in God. Israel has forgotten this. And to this day, we forget it too. 
So again, who is the Lord and King of your life? Everyone's interested in Jesus being their Savior, but very few people are interested in acknowledging Jesus as their Lord and their King. Is Jesus your Lord and King? So here's the theme that we're going to be living in for the next couple of months, the theme of First and Second Samuel. God opposes the proud, and he exalts the humble. And where the strength of humanity fails, God will save through the humbled Christ. Do you know where we get the word Christ from? We get it from 1 Samuel. See, to be a Christ literally means to be an anointed one. And each of Israel's kings, before they are ushered in as a king, they are anointed with oil. And in Hebrew, that means they're a messiah. In Greek, it means they are a Christ. But the whole point of this book, if you have the eyes to see, if you recognize that every story whispers the name of Jesus, you are going to see that the history of each of these created Christ figures in First and Second Samuel only leave us longing for the rule and the reign of the one true Christ, the ultimate Christ. And so, spoiler alert, things don't get better, they get worse. In this story, things only go from bad to worse. But here's what I want to put out toward you, for you to reflect on now and for the remainder of this series. Which God are you worshiping? Which God are you worshiping? A God of your own creation? A God of your own choosing? Or the one true God? And tied to that, how are you treating your neighbor? Are you treating your neighbor like a ladder to get what you want? Or are you loving them with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength? Are you loving them as you love yourself? Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.